Have you ever received a, a compliment that you're not quite sure what to do with? Y'all are laughing already. I got one of those this week, and it, was, it really was a compliment, but it was one of those things that kind of made you scratch your head a little bit. I had someone who uh, uh, emailed me and said, um, Book of Ecclesiastes. I wasn't quite sure what to think about it because I've read that book before and I didn't like it. But I have found myself strangely engaged uh, as we enter into this task. And here's the challenge. You read it and on the surface, it just seems blah, depressing, terrible. And yet we are finding that not by mistake, God inspired this scripture too for our benefit. And there are things that are good for us to, to look at. And so I don't know if, um, if it was more, um, hey, you know, you usually do a really poor job and you've actually done a halfway decent job with Ecclesiastes, or if it's been, man, Ecclesiastes is a tough book. And it is. It's very challenging. <clears throat> and as we come to our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we come to one of the most confusing things that I think we find in our culture. Listen, there's, there's a lot of things we're confused about in our culture. We don't even know what bathroom to use anymore. But there's, there's something even more fundamental that we get confused, and it's this. It might not be what you're thinking of, but the question that I think we are confused about is, is worship for us or is it for God? Is worship for us or is it for God? Because how you answer that question will determine a whole host of issues. Now, none of you are impious enough to say that worship is about me. Like, anyone want to hold themselves up as a candidate for us to worship this morning? Your football team worthy of worship this morning? Jonathan Brown, you can come down to the invitation. I saw that head shake. <laughs> One of the things that's odd, I think, is you get older. I think this is natural. So if you consider yourself old, I'm not calling you old this morning. I'll let you put yourself in that category. One of the things that seems to happen with, with the, the process, the natural process of maturity, is you do kind of become a little bit more cantankerous. And in one of the ways that that is expressed is your view about young people. And uh, I will admit, um, I sometimes have fallen into this, that my goodness, is there a group of people that are more self-absorbed than young people? Let me just encourage you that it is not only young people that are me-centered instead of God-centered. There are all kinds of people that really do think that this solar system spins around them. You want to know how? Find out what happens when they don't get what they think they deserve. Oh my goodness. I'm going to write up. They're so, they're so agitated, they're going to put something unfriendly on Facebook about it. It's change you can believe in right there. And yet the truth is when we talk about worship, there are some ways that we turn worship into a spectacle, to an issue of entertainment. One of the things that, bought, one of the things that encouraged me this morning is listening to you sing, and I don't know if this was intentional on Eric's part, but the songs were not as loud, they were softer. So if you heard anything this morning, it was people's voices. Did you hear it? It was beautiful. We didn't hand out earplugs, and we didn't encourage you to be passive in sitting back and listening to the, bland, the band, you know, shred it up this morning. 
It's not an issue of fog machines and laser lights. It's about us singing our praise as creatures to God. Worship should not be a spectacle and it should not be entertainment. But there are many ways in which worship can become very blasphemous and sacrilegious. I'm about to tell you a story and I promise you this is not a preacher story. I'm not making this up. I wish I was. There was a church and a desire to um, get a lot of people in church, which is that, a, is that a worthy goal? Yes, we want people in church. They decided, so next week we have homecoming. We're inviting Dr. Sosby, former pastor, come back and preach. It's going to be a great time. But they, instead of having a former preacher come back, decided that they want to get, they want to get a personality that will really get people to come out. So they get a WWF superstar to come to their church. And on their stage... They build a huge WWF ring, and this WWF superstar is going to, to wrestle in the worship service a brand new WWF star you've never heard of. His name is the Master Pastor. And so a pastor dressed up in spandex, leotard, speedo, whatever it was, God forbid, <laughs> and made a fool of himself in front of a record-breaking crowd. Because worship and the preaching of the word is not enough to get people to come. Now listen, I, I, I would be willing to be a fool. I would go to great lengths to, for people. I'd be willing to do it. But what are we teaching people that worship is about if when we invite them, it's not about God. It's about entertainment. And this is not a new, this is not a new problem. If you have even just read the Bible in the most cursory form, you would know that James had to address first century Christians who were showing favoritism. Oh, you drive a Jag, you get the best seat. Oh, you rode your bike, um, you can be in one of those back rooms. Yeah, we don't have any chairs there, sorry about that. James addressed favoritism, which certainly was not about God. It was about connections with people of standing. Paul had to write to the Corinthians because they were getting drunk on communion wine. Like, that's what's happening in their worship service. Now, I, I found out something in, in uh, Mr. Deacon Chairman. I don't even know if you're aware of this, okay? But the last time we took communion, we used grape juice, for which I am even now more especially glad, because this has been going on for a long time, and I don't even know this, is that whenever we get done with communion, and there's communion things that are left, they go downstairs and they, they dump it out except they don't need to do that anymore because evidently the Davis boys are going down doing Baptist shots with all the leftover grape juice. I'm like, how long has this been going on? Why has nobody told me? And everyone just kind of smiles and pats me on the head. I'm like, I am really glad it is grape juice. Let's just say that. So Paul had to write and he had to address the Corinthian believers for ways that they were abusing worship. Jesus himself um, did something that sounds really kind of mean-spirited. He created a whip and he drove people out of the courtyard because they had, they had turned God's house of prayer into a place of commerce. How can we make a, a quick buck? And so in our day, we do see a lack of reverence. We do see people that at attend church out of rote custom because mom and dad make them. We see people that have turned worship into entertainment. There are even people who come to church, believe it or not, to be seen and to be heard. It's good for business. One author commented on this challenge that we have about worship, being about me or being about God, by, by noting the difference between cat theology and dog theology. Anybody heard this before? Cat, you know, meow, dog, rough, rough. Cat theology and dog theology. Here's the difference really quickly. And uh, I'm sorry in advance to all you cat lovers. Two weeks in a row, I'm busting on the cats, but hey, that's the way it's supposed to be. Dog theology is, 
You feed me, you pet me, and you take care of me. You must be a god. Cat theology is you feed me, you pet me, you take care of me. I must be a god. (laughs) Have you found that to be true? There are ways that cat and dog theology is expressed every Sunday in our worship services when people fight for their preferences and and make something that is not in the Bible a non-negotiable. We've turned it into cat theology. It's about me. I'm in charge. What I want goes. And it is even heard from the most prominent pulpits in the United States. Listen, popularity is um, is no safeguard from perversion. And so I want you to listen to this video clip. I want you to tell me if it's dog theology or if it's cat theology. So I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves. Because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives Him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship Him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself. Because that's what makes God happy. Amen. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I guess dumb is one word for it. (laughs) Blasphemy might be another one. Friends, this is the largest church in the United States. And people are dressing up and going to church and they think that they're getting the the good news of the gospel. That it's not about you. And it's just being reinforced. Solomon addresses this in his day and age. And he says, it's not just pleasure, it's not just time, it's not just work that's futile. He says, religion is meaningless. But worship can be meaningful if we do it right. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to begin with a general principle that Solomon illustrates copiously for us. He begins by saying that God deserves to be approached, God deserves to be approached with great care. Chapter 5, the beginning part of verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard is a word for be careful, um, take care, don't be hasty, don't be careless. Some of you uh, may know this. We've got a um, World War II veteran in our church who's over, he's 100 years old. And uh, Mr. Miller, Machine Gun Miller, as he was known in World War II, uh, landed on Iwo Jima uh, successfully and was told he needed to take his squad across the island to help Marines on the other side of the island. The only catch was there was a minefield between their part of the island and the part of the island that they needed to to go through, and they had to go through it because it was, even though it was a minefield, it was the safest way to go there because there weren't going to be troops there. They just figured the minefield would keep people away. So after he asked for volunteers to lead the way, he decided it was his responsibility to do that. And he looked back very soberly at the men that he led, and he said, if I happen to step in a good place, I'd recommend that you follow me. That's guarding your steps. That's being careful about how you do it. And so he is beginning at the very first part of this verse by telling us to guard our steps, working with the well-warranted assumption that we are not careful about how we come into God's presence. 
that we just traipse into his court, trample into his presence to do our stuff so that we can hurry up and get to lunch. And he gives three examples. The first example that he gives, here's a vocabulary lesson for you guys. He tells us to avoid presenting odiferous offerings. He says, your offerings stink. Your offerings stink because they're not done out of obedience. Avoid presenting odiferous offerings. Look at the second part of verse, verse 1. He says, guard your steps, but it's better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifices fools do. Obviously, the, the fools think that they are obeying by offering a sacrifice, but it's done out of disobedience. Now, how do we know that? When he says it's better to draw near in obedience... This is something you're not going to catch in your English translation. The word for obedience is the Hebrew word Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when he says obey, what he's really saying is listen. Hear. And so how do you know, parents, if your kids obey? Well, did they hear you? How do you know if they heard you? They obey or they don't i mean they could hear you and not obey which is not obedience so when he says to obey he's really saying the only kind of hearing is not when it passes in one ear and out the other the kind of hearing that god is talking about is hearing the voice of god and acting in obedience and so when we talk about this whole idea of hearing god and in offering these stinky offerings that are offered out of disobedience we have to remember what the bible teaches us and the bible teaches us that that sin separates us from God. It separates us from God. You'll remember when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, Moses went up on the mountain and God came down in a, a storm and he said, I don't, want any, I don't want any living thing to touch the mountain. Moses is allowed up, but anything. He said, you know, if this is the, the level ground and this is the mountain, you step on it, you will die. You'll die. And then we know when we look at the, um, the Old Testament temple, they had concentric rings of holiness. And so uh, Gentiles could only come so far. Jewish women could come a little bit closer. Jewish men could come a little bit closer. But the high priest, he could go all the way to the Holy of Holies, but even he could only do that one time a year. And God's holiness was so revered that his little um, toga thing that he would wear had tassels on the bottom that they would tie bells to. And they would tie a rope around his foot. So when he went into the Holy of Holies, if he had sin in his heart and they heard the bells stop, then he'd been stricken dead. He'd, been fallen, he'd fallen over. And they had a rope to pull him out. Because how dare they, they um, violate the holiness of the Holy of Holies by going in to remove the dead body. That's serious. He says, draw near to obey. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. Immediately this calls to mind <clears throat> the story in 1 Samuel 15, 22, where Saul thinks he's doing a good thing. Uh, he's obeying God by offering this offering. And listen to how Samuel re- responds to Saul. He says, Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to pay attention, to listen, is better than the fat of rams. Saul, who was no priest, was offering a sacrifice to the Lord. The problem was the Lord had not called for him to sacrifice that the Lord had called for him to obliterate it. And he figured, oh, well, let's, let's just do our own little worship service here. And without Samuel being there to officiate, Saul took the initiative and Samuel has to call him out. and says, you, you didn't obey. 
I know what you think you were doing was good, but it is not what the Lord instructed you to do. It's not the only time this happens. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It doesn't matter who your family is when it comes to obedience. You still have to obey. Here, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Aaron's son, Aaron, the brother of Moses. Aaron's son, who were priests, Nadab and Abihu by name, each took in his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented an authorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. And fire came from the Lord and burned them to death before the Lord. Why? Hey, man, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do this. No, 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 no. The Bible is not asking you to be creative. The Bible is asking you to obey. Don't inject man-wise things to do in worship. Obey. Just follow the instructions. And yet we are so focused on ourselves and what we can do and how we can you know, be creative that we don't even realize that we're disobeying. There are some people who thought, hey, listen, God's got to be happy. I've offered a sacrifice. So automatically, by offering the sacrifice, God is now duty-bound to cancel out my sin. Let me just suggest that if you're trying to barter with God, that has more to do with paganism than it does with Christianity. God does not barter with spiritual terrorists. God, I'm going to get out of sin this week because I you know, gave, gave a large offering. No, 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 no. The, the truth is this. Ritual without repentance is worthless. Ritual, whatever it is. The Lord's Supper, if there is no faith in your heart, all you are doing is heaping condemnation upon yourself. Worship, if you don't listen to the word, if you don't sing the songs out of your heart, is worthless. It doesn't do you any good. You are wasting your time here this morning. Because ritual without repentance is worthless. It's worthless. God wants us to obey. And if we obey, we'll offer offerings. But we'll do it the way that God wants us to. His second illustration, verses two through three, he says, watch out for pathetic prayers. Watch out for pathetic prayers. Look at verses two and three. It says this, uh, do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven. You little fella are on earth. So let your words be few. For dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. Again, we assume that we're in a position of equivalence to kind of walk into God's presence and just start talking to him. I, I guarantee you that like if, if, if the president, pick your president, any president of the last 50 years, walked in here, you're not just going to talk to him like you're sitting on the stool at Ebenezer Grill ordering a hot dog. I mean, there's a certain decorum, you know? You wait to be spoken to. You don't just kind of traipse and assume that you're allowed to speak. And he characterizes our actions in speaking to God as two words that are not good, hasty and impulsive. And he says, just, just to make sure you guys kind of understand where you fit in the economy of the universe. God's in heaven. And you are a co- cosmic, microscopic piece of dust that he has um, enlivened by breathing his breath into it. But you're not God. So let your words, let your words be few. This sounds strikingly similar to instruction that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 on the screen behind me. uh, It says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. You know, one reason why your prayers can be brief, and listen, this is good, okay? 
Here is a preacher telling you what Jesus himself said. Your prayers don't need to have a lot of words. They need to be brief and frequent. I mean, you need to be in constant communication with them, but you don't need to babble on. They can be brief. And Jesus says, you know why you can be brief? God already knows what you're dealing with before you even ask him. Now, you still need to ask him because you need to know that you're dependent upon him. He, he knows quite well that you're dependent upon him. The question is whether you know it or not. So you have to voice your prayers, but don't voice your prayers to him like you're informing God of anything. Hey, I know you probably missed this, um, but I, I got this going on. No, no, he knows. He knows. He's not an ignoramus when it comes to this. Another example of prayer that is remarkably brief, but also very humble. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Jesus tells a story about two men. It says two men went up to pray at the temple complex. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, the, the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven. He kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. I'll tell you the truth. This one went down to his house justified rather than the other one because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Not a long prayer. It's brief. But the other thing that marks this prayer as special is its remarkable humility. We're getting ready to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, 1517, Martin Luther, uh, the Wittenberg Church door. So I've got to throw a Luther quote in here. Luther sounds a lot like Jesus, except with a little more spice. He says this, Prayers should be brief, frequent, and intense, for God has no need of such everlasting twaddle. Don't be a twaddler before God. Spit it out and be in constant communication with them. But don't but be brief, be frequent, and be intense. He makes this weird comment uh, Solomon does about uh, dreams, that through dreams and through words, you have all this foolishness. The point that he's making is that people think that if they use a lot of words before God, now God will hear them. You know, I said 10,000 words, he said five. I, my prayer has got to just kind of have more broadcast frequency to make its way through. It's kind of like the guy who dreams big dreams. Oh, God, I'm going to do great things for you. And they, they, they never materialize into anything. Big dreams, small plans. Many words, not really a heartfelt prayer. He's talked about our, our offerings that are messed up. We're not approaching God with care through our offerings. We're not approaching God with care through our prayers. Third and finally, for the last of these illustrations, in verses 4 through 6, he says, Beware unkept commitments made to God. Beware unkept commitments made to God. And he's, he's talking all about vows that we make, ways that we use our lips to, to promise things to God and then we don't deliver. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says this, When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands. Uh, here's the deal. Everybody likes to win, okay? So whether it's church league softball, or whether it's dominoes, everybody likes to win. The problem is when you cheat to get there. Everybody wants to win in their relationship with God, yet there are constant ways that we cheat Him. We want credit for a really full uh, and fulfilling life with God, 
but we're only giving this. We want, we want this, we, we want this. And this is most evident in how we give to God. And, I, and I'm not talking solely about your finances. I'm talking about your time, your talent, and your treasure. Giving to God who you are. In the Old Testament, the, 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 the model that was set up was to give God your first fruits. So if you plant a tomato bush, the first tomatoes that pop off. Like, you know, if you've got kids and you've planted it and the, those tomatoes finally get ripe, what do your kids want to do? They want to sample them. They want to try them. Oh, no, 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 kids. No, 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 no. Out of thankfulness to God. We don't know if this bush is going to produce any more tomatoes, but out of gratefulness to God, we're going to give him our first fruits. Before we know, is our cow going to have another calf? We give the first one to God. We give the best that we have to God. And yet in Malachi, instead of giving the first fruits, they would offer whatever they couldn't use. So there's a calf born with three legs. Sounds like a great offering for God. We don't have to worry with them now. We don't have to put a peg leg on the cow. You know, let's just offer them to God. They would give the blind. They would give the lame. They would give the sick. And then they wondered why God was miffed at these sacrifices that were disobedient. Let me, uh, let, me, let me step on some toes even more, okay? Um, and I, I, I mean this out of love. We are in a very, we're in a very fortunate position. I am humbly grateful before God that we are in a, a 30, uh, I'm going to say a, a 50 or $60,000 surplus as a church. So we're about $30,000 ahead in our giving, and we're about, about $30,000 behind in our spending. We're just not spending much. We're frugal. We're not cheapskates. We're frugal. And so we are, listen, the, the percentage of churches that are in the situation that we are in, uh, you can count on your fingers and you don't need both hands, okay? According to our most recent giving statement, we are a church of about 400 to 450 people. You know how many people were, were generated a giving statement because they've made a gift to our church? 200 people. Now, I'm not good at math. But what does that tell you? About half of the people that call this church their home don't give a penny. Now, when I was married, I did something really foolish. Not just once, by the way. Uh, I know you're, you're really shocked. You are shocked and amazed to hear this. But I thought in, in, in marriage, I, I think marriage should really be a partnership. Amen? Yeah, I thought it should be a partnership. So if she would cook, I would eat. You know? Um, <laughs> How do you think that worked out? That's not really a partnership. I needed to do the dishes, at least, you know. Uh, if she's going to do the stuff on the front end and we're both going to enjoy the meal, then it's a partnership when I wash the dishes. Here's the deal. We got a lot of people that their idea of a partnership with the church and a partnership with God is, hey, you cook and I'll eat. We got people here, and, and, and listen, it's all kinds of people. It's not new people, it's old people. It's not young people, it's old people. We got people here that don't even put in enough to replace the Sunday school curriculum that they use. And we actually believe that when you make a commitment to church membership, you're making a vow to, to be a part of the life of our congregation, to be active. There is no such conception as an active church membership. If you're an inactive church member, you're not a church member. Plain and simple. I don't mean that to be offensive, but like, what makes you different than, than Joe Schmo on the street? Nothing. Nothing. So we actually believe if you're going to be a member of the church, you're going to show up. You're going to find a way to serve. You're going to find a way to encourage people through your time, through your talents, and through your treasure. You're going to give. We don't expect you 
to give a ton unless you have the capacity to give a ton. We expect you to give what you can because God's design is sacrificial but proportionate. And so uh, he, I, I do not mean this with any kind of rancor in my heart. I am grateful to God that he has taken this humble congregation and he's given us a $60,000 bonus. But you know what? We are celebrating sinfulness when we do that. Because the success that we have is only with 50% of our people. So I, I, I want to encourage and say, God, thank you, but I don't want to celebrate disobedience. I don't want to celebrate disobedience. This is not just a problem in Solomon's day. It is a problem in our day too. You see, God, God in the Bible takes vows very seriously. You remember the story of Hannah. Hannah couldn't have a child. And she prayed to God. She made a vow to God. If you give me a child, I'll turn him back over to you. And then Samuel was born. And then it, from all intents and purposes, it looks like she held on to him for two years. Was she reneging on her vow? No. She gave him up at the first earliest opportunity that she had once he was weaned. As a mom of a newborn, she needed to nurse him. And at the first available opportunity, she turned him over to the Lord. Vows are highly regarded, but they're trouble if you don't keep them. Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story. Barnabas becomes known as the son of encouragement because he liquidates everything that he has to give to the church because Pentecost has happened and there's all these people that got to be taken care of. So Barnabas gets rid of everything. He doesn't need it. He's a ward of the church now. Gives it all to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they see all the, the good attention that, that Barnabas has gotten. They're like, hey, we could do the same thing. So they say, let's get rid of all of our property. And um, when they find out how much the, what the going rate was for their property, they got greedy. They're like, wow, we thought we'd only get 75000 for this. It's going to go for a hundred. Here's what we'll do. Let's tell the church when we give it to them that we sold it for seventy-five, But we'll really sell it for a hundred, and we'll put that other twenty-five in our pocket. Now, was it theirs to do with what they wanted? Absolutely. So why would they lie and say that they gave everything to the church because they wanted credit for giving everything to the church. God didn't require this. This was not a law. So they, of their own volition, chose to lie. So they get into the church service. It's amazing how this works out. And it just shows, I think, how God promises to be present with his people when they're gathered in his name. They're in the middle of the church service. Everybody's bringing their offerings down. <clears throat> Ananias comes down. Peter says, hey, hold on a second. Uh, Ananias, did you... Um, you sold that property for $75,000, didn't you? Yes, sir, I did. Why have you chosen, the Bible doesn't say to lie to the church, it doesn't say to lie to the apostle Peter, it says why have you hidden evil in your heart and chosen to lie to the Holy Spirit? And it says at that moment, he fell over dead. Not just an Old Testament thing in Leviticus chapter 10, Acts chapter 5, early chapters of the church, fell over dead. They take him out. His wife comes in from like her WMU Sunday school. I don't know where she's at. She comes walking in. She's trying to figure out where she's going to sit. Where's her husband at? Peter goes, hey, uh, Sapphire, I got a question for you. Um, 75000 that was the asking price, right? Oh, absolutely. Let me ask you one more time. Is that your final answer? Oh, yes, it's, it's my final answer. You want to phone a friend? No, don't need to phone a friend. Shame on you because the feet of the men who just want to bury your husband are just returning and they're going to carry you out as well. Fell over dead fell over dead. Do you really think that you can fool God? Listen, teenagers, let me give you a word of encouragement, okay? You might fool your mom and dad for a little bit. They're going to find out. 
They're going to find out. You, you already know your mom has eyes in the back of her head, okay? And dad has spies everywhere. They're going to find out. And they're not even God. Why would, we, why would we try to lie? The reality is when we make these vows, when we do these foxhole prayers, they're not typically true commitments. How do we know? Because as soon as the crisis is over, the obedience is gone. It's not a real commitment. And so you go, man, vows. We don't make vows today. Uh, yes, you do. If you have been baptized, that's a vow to be faithful to God until the day that you die. If, you have, if you're a church member, we've already talked about how that's a vow. If you are married, you have promised till death, do you part? Who are you trying to fool? Your spouse? You're certainly not fooling God. If you have been ordained as a deacon or as a minister, you are making a vow to be faithful to God and be a good leader. If you have ever uh, been summoned in a court, you have placed your... Some of you should burn up on the spot. You've placed your hand on the Bible and you've promised to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Jesus addresses this, Matthew 5, 33. He says, you have heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. Instead, let your word, yes, be yes, and your no be no. Anything more is from the evil one. His conclusion is, it's better not to make a vow than it is to make one and not pay it. So what vows have you made that have demonstrated that you've not approached God with care. Secondly and finally, we're going to look at verse 7. <clears throat> we've been told to guard our steps. We've been told to be careful. We've been told to take care. We have been warned about our actions, but we find that our attitude is even more determinative. Your actions can be done poorly, but if you have the right attitude, you will infuse your actions uh, with the right motivation. Why can't we come before Him however we want why can't we say before him whatever we want? What's the big deal about careless offerings? What's the, the big deal about loose lips in our prayers and in our vows? Quite simply, because he's God. He's God. And we learn that he sees, he hears, he knows, he evaluates our worship. The Bible says that he speaks, and our job is not to speak, it's to listen and to prove that we listen by obeying. So if you want to avoid worthless worship, if you want your worship to be meaningful, You'll do what verse 7 says. It says, For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. If you want worship to be meaningful, we will engage God with reverence. With reverence. This is not the fear of some um, capricious deity who he loves you today, he hates you tomorrow. He's looking to give you a whammy. This is an aweness of God, that we are in awe of him, and we know that he's worthy of our worship and our obedience. We, we, we began this section of Ecclesiastes 5.1 by being warned about our steps. It concludes with an admonition to fear God, and it brackets everything in between. Verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Don't be engaged in, in meaningless religion because you don't have fear of God in your hearts. So we've been told all kinds of things about God, that his work stands forever compared to our work, that he dwells in heaven while we're little bitty creatures on earth, that he rules over time. Time seems meaningless to us. He rules over time. He evaluates our work, and he will be the judge of all humanity. This sounds like a God to be scared of. But notice what verse 1 said. Guard your steps. It's not stay away. 
It's not, don't ever think about coming close. The point that it's making is that God is high and lofty and incredible and transcendent and big, but he can be approached. He wants proximity. He wants fellowship. We just have to realize that there's a huge gap between him and us. I don't even know how to illustrate it. Like, is it the same difference between us and ants? Or us and slugs? I don't know. It's a huge difference. It's even bigger than that because he's God and we're a creature. Even though he is transcendent over all creator and ruler, he himself stepped out of heaven. Jesus stepped out of heaven, incarnated himself as a man, and offered himself as a substitution that for those who put their faith in Christ, he died in our place. He paid the debt for us. And so now here's the thing. instead of having a whole list of rules for us to follow to be right with God, you know what's happened for us? Get this. One rule. One rule. You know what it is? Come to the Father through the Son. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, in the life, there is no other way to the Father except through me. And yet, here, here's what I hear. I hear us, as contemporaries, scoffing at Adam and Eve because they only had one rule to follow and they blew it. Friends, we have one rule. Come to God through Christ. Lay it down at the cross. There is no other way for you to be in a right relationship with God. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of sacrifice. There's no amount of religious ecstasy that you can feel to be in a right relationship with God. God has said, if you want to be in a right relationship with me, you must be in a right relationship with my son, which means we repent. We place our faith in Christ because everything else is an empty work of man. So Solomon here says, guys, listen, Religion can be absolutely worthless. And his conclusion is not give up or quit. His thing is fear God. Listen to God. And God has said, if you want to be close to me, you've got to be close to my son. It's that simple. It's one rule. Instead of just running away from the futility of religion, we can run towards meaningful worship by having a fear of God that is demonstrated in a listening that obeys. So what's great is we don't have to come and worship him with a bunch of dead animals. That'd be gross. Unless it's cats, then that would be okay. Um, We don't offer bloody animals. What do we offer? We offer me, myself, and I. We offer ourselves as a Romans 12, 1, holy and living sacrifice, which is our acceptable um, spiritual worship. But we have to understand, friends, that the only reason we are able to offer ourselves is because he offered himself and he has made us clean through the shedding of his blood. I conclude with this. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. The author to Hebrews says, guys, listen, Jesus changes everything. He's made a new and living way open to us. Therefore, brothers, <clears throat> since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Don't stay away. Just come the right way. Let us draw near with a heart 
With a true heart, in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised, he's faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The Bible said the way is open. The way is free. The way is Jesus. Will you enter in? Oh, and by the way, if you enter in, will you maintain your hope in this way that God has determined? And will you walk in such a way that you don't walk by yourself, but you encourage one another all the more as the day draws near? The Bible says we need more encouragement every day that we live, not less. Who are you encouraging? Who are you helping? Who are you demonstrating that you are obeying, that you have listened and heard the voice of God, and that you're living with intentionality to honor Him? Pray with me, please.